Okay, well, good evening. It's good to see everyone. And uh, once again, bring greetings from Heritage in Johannesburg. And uh, obviously, a very exciting time here in Poch with Pastor Rian coming, moving this side and coming full time this side. And uh, so we are also very excited back in Johannesburg and praying lots for you, praying that you would give lots of money and be generous so we can uh, support Pastor Rian and his family. So, um, yeah, I'll be praying as they move and as they settle in and, um, yeah, that the church will grow. Uh, evangelistic efforts are fruitful. Uh, I think that we're trusting that the Lord will work in a wonderful way. So, we're rejoicing with you over this. Well, our, our passage this evening, as you can see, is Second Corinthians from chapter 12, verse 19 through to 13, verse 4. If you've, if you've been here for any period of time, you'll know that I come through once a month, and we've been going through Second Corinthians, and uh, we've done two sermons already in chapter 12, so we're going to finish chapter 12 and move into chapter 13. So let me read the passage first, and then we'll, we'll unpack it. So 2 Corinthians 12, 19, Paul says this, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come I, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So a few months ago, I read a, a BBC article. It was quite humorous. It was from BBC Africa, and it was in Kenya, where uh, game rangers had been called to, uh, to find a lion that had been spotted in the community. And so... These three game rangers came and they found where the lion was hiding and uh, they slowly approached the lion with great trepidation and got closer and closer and then they started to realize, wait a minute, something's not right here. And they found out that it was actually a shopping bag, one of those big shopping bags that had a print of a lion's face that had been put in the bush. And everyone had thought that it was a real lion and, it, and I saw the photo, it looked very realistic, but it was just a, a shopping bag. And that's sort of what's going on here, that the Corinthians, and especially the false teachers, are saying, you know, Paul, we don't need to be scared of Paul. Actually, he's just a shopping bag. He's not a real lion. Yes, his letters, and they said this about him, his letters are weighty and powerful. Yes, he writes well and, and in a powerful way, 
But, you know, his bodily presence is weak and contemptible. He's ugly. He's not dynamic. He's not charismatic. He's, uh, he's not a very uh, great speaker. He does not have uh, a lot of stage presence. So you don't really need to take him seriously. Uh, they've been turning the church against the apostle. And if you know 2 Corinthians and what we've already looked at, Paul has to defend his ministry, but he does it in a very ironic way because he defends himself by showing how weak he is, actually. He doesn't boast about, he's, you know, I'm so great, actually I'm a great preacher and my mom thinks I'm good looking and uh, all of these things. He doesn't do that. He actually just says, yes, I am weak. Yes, I do suffer a lot. Uh, but it's the message that I have and the gospel message that I proclaim. That's where the true power is. Uh, and so he does it in a very disarming way. But he still needs to warn them, and that's why the title for the sermon is Don't, Don't Confuse Weakness with Powerlessness. While God's servants and, and uh, original apostles were weak uh, physically and in a worldly sense, as you looked at them, they were nothing to write home about but they came with the power of God. And Paul is here in this section, as we're going to see, is going to warn the Corinthians that he has real power to come and discipline them if they do not repent. Okay. And so let's look at the passage uh, back at chapter 12, verse 19. Paul says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? Is it in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ? Sorry, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So Paul says, do you think I've just been defending myself? Do you think this whole letter, uh, here we are at the end of the 12th chapter, 12 chapters, obviously the chapters are not original, they weren't there with Paul, but uh, do you think all this paper has just been me defending myself? Uh, how many of you watched you know, some of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard court case. Can't you? I saw that hand. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that's theological students. We've got loads of time. We just watch uh, YouTube. Uh, but what happened there? It was a defamation case. She said this about him, and so he took her to court. He said this, and so uh, Paul is saying, do you think that this is what, is what it's all about? I just want to clear my name. I'm just reacting. I don't like people saying, slandering me, and so I'm I'm defending myself. He says, that's got nothing to do with it. Paul elsewhere actually says, I care very little for what other people think of me. Paul wasn't living with the fear of man and wanting everyone to like him. What was he doing here? He realized if these false teachers turned the church against the apostle and turned the church against the teachings of the apostle Paul, they would be damned. If, and that's still the reality. If you reject the teachings of the Apostle Paul, if you reject the gospel of Paul, there is no salvation. That's what Paul is saying. I, it's not me. It's not some defamation case. I'm just trying to defend myself. It's for your sake. Notice what he calls them, beloved. As we said before, the background to this church is, is remarkable. And that's why I love 2 Corinthians, because you see Paul's heart it's a church where he sacrificed, he gave of himself. He was uh, in Corinth for a, a year and a half, and he loved this church, and he, he didn't receive money from them. He worked day and night, all of these things, and yet they turned against him. They slandered him. They, they, they so quickly were, were turned astray. Uh, he was cut deeply. He was hurt so much, and you see it in Second Corinthians, and yet he still calls them beloved. He doesn't allow bitterness to 
to well up in his heart. He doesn't turn nasty towards them. He still calls them beloved. He wants them to know the Lord. Notice he says it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. That's how Paul lived his life. There's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo, in the face of God. Now all of, the, all of us live in the presence of God. Remember Paul says this in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. God is om, omnipresent. We all live in the presence of God, but we are to intentionally live in the presence of God. We are to be aware of that, that every decision that we make, every word that we say, every action is guided by the fact that we live in the presence of God. Paul is saying that everything I've done has been in the presence of God. And so a challenge to all of us, do we live like that? Does your life revolve around Christ and his kingdom, building his church, making his name great? How many times have you not sinned because you thought, what if somebody sees me? Well, there is someone who sees you all the time. The triune God sees you all the time. So keep that in your mind. We live quorum day. We live in the face of God. Paul says that. Now, uh, one of the problems with, uh, with uh, the Corinthian church is these false teachers. They did not live like that. It was about them. And it is a problem in the Western... Con- uh, it's been a problem since, <laughs> since Corinth and earlier in the Old Testament... But it is an especially big problem in the Western church that so many church leaders are like these Corinthians. They are narcissists. D.A. Carson says this, Sadly, too many leaders, consciously or unconsciously, link their own careers and reputations with the gospel they proclaim and the people they serve. They're not about building the people of God and glorifying God. They're about building their own career, their own status, their own name, their own kingdom, Carson says, slowly, unnoticed by all but the most discerning, defense of the truth slips into self-defense. And the best interest of the congregation becomes identified with the best interest of the leaders. Personal triumphalism strikes again, sometimes with vicious intensity. It is found in the evangelical academic who invests all his opinions with the authority of Scripture. In the pastor whose every word is above contradiction, in the leader transparently more interested in self-promotion and the esteem of the crowd than in the benefit and progress of the Christians allegedly being served. It issues in political maneuvering, temper tantrums, a secular set of values, a smug and self-serving shepherd and hungry sheep. So as churches, remember the Corinthians are responsible for the leaders that they that they follow. Uh, That's the model that we hold to as Baptists. We believe it's the biblical model. You can't say, well, it's not my fault, it's it's the leaders. Uh, You are responsible as a congregation for the leaders that you have. If the leaders start preaching a false gospel, if the leaders, the elders, pastors start living uh, ungodly lives, within the Constitution, you must get rid of them. You must deal with them. Uh, And so to be on the lookout that you're not following narcissists, but following people who imitate Paul, as as Paul imitates Christ. Those that serve, those that come in weakness, not building their own kingdoms. But again, we're going to see, not powerless, 
not people pleasers, those that still stand on the scriptures and what God's word says. Verse 20, for I, Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. So he had left Corinth, he had planted the church, he had left, then he had come back, and he had been devastated. He had been heartbroken by the, the reception that he received. Uh, he was falsely accused and nobody came to his defense. Yeah, the father of the church, the one who planted the church, the one who labored, plowed the ground, sowed the seed, is nobody stood up and defended him. They knew his character, they knew the way he had lived, and yet they, they betrayed him. And he's devastated and he goes away, but he, he can't stop thinking about them, and so he sends Titus to go and find out. He writes a letter that we don't have in between what we call First and Second Corinthians, and they respond to it. Uh, it's called a sorrowful letter. And uh, they respond to it, and Titus comes back with a good report. But Paul understands that sin doesn't always leave so easily, does it, unfortunately? Uh, the whole congregation had turned against him, and now many had repented, but no doubt there were still these, these elements who had not yet repented. And that's why he's saying here, when I come, you may not find me as, I may not find you as I wish. So he wants to come and find them rejoicing, repentant, serving the Lord. But he's worried, maybe I'll find some of you not repentant, continuing in sin. And then you will find me not the way you want to see me. And Paul is saying, I'm going to come with a stick then. I'm going to come and practice church discipline. Because if, if you allow sin and rebellion to continue in a denomination, in a church, uh, it's, it's that yeast, isn't that right? And the Lord calls us to deal with it. And so that's what he's alluding to here. He says that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And these are all sins that cause division in the church. They affect the unity of the church. The unity of the church is critical. Now remember, in, as Christians, our unity is not based on external things. It's not that we all have to like the same music or the same food, all dress the same way. That's how, how the world works. Um, that's how they enforce unity. They create a false unity through external things. Um, you can see this in many cults. Okay? They'll have a uniform. Okay? We all have to dress the same. We all have to do all of these kind of things. But God's people are not called to that. We all have diverse gifts and abilities and personalities, and it's glorious. And God calls us to come together and learn to love one another and serve one another and uh, come together as a body, complementing one another. That's what we're called to. But these sins here break down that unity. What are they? Well, the first one is quarreling. All of these sins, incidentally, have been mentioned in his first, what we call First Corinthians. He actually goes through these sins, um, but he's worried that they're still going to be there. Quarreling, strife, discord, debates, contentions. This is not over, you know... It is right to defend the truth and to debate the truth and to stand on the truth. This is, this is tertiary issues. This is foolish debates. This is strife. Um, people arguing over politics and things like that, not taking the gospel seriously, not united over the gospel. It brings division. Jealousy. There is a good jealousy. Okay? God is jealous for us. It's good to be Jealous over one another, to care for your children, for your spouse. 
This is, a, this is an ungodly jealousy. This is a strong feeling of resentment. Uh, you, you're, you're upset about what's happening in other people's lives. You're jealous when things go well for them. Okay. Something with my own children, trying to teach them to rejoice when things go well. My little daughter, she, she, she gets quite devastated now that her brothers are older and they get to go to, you know, there's more birthday parties and camps, church camps for them. And she's, she's like... So I see her, she, goes, she drops her head like <laughs> and she. And I say, what's wrong? Caleb's going to another camp. <laughs> uh, and so I have to try and teach her, you need to learn to rejoice in that, it's, that your brother gets to go to another camp. That's what God calls us to. Not jealousy, but to rejoice when it goes well with, with others. Not to put down people when they succeed and are blessed and things go well for them. When somebody gets married in the church, not to be upset, well, why am I not getting married? Somebody has a child, why, why can't we have children? And those are difficult things. Those are deep things, painful things. I understand that. It's not simple. We need God's grace to work in us. But, but His grace is sufficient to learn to... It's fascinating. You know, the Lord doesn't say, just don't get upset. He says, rejoice. Okay. So you could say, well, at least I'm not, I'm not too sad. But he actually says, rejoice. When you hear good news from others, when you see God working in other people's lives and blessing them and doing good to them, rejoice with them. Jealousy causes that division and that break in, in fellowship. Anger. The idea here is intense anger with passionate outbursts. Okay? Um, and of, of course the scriptures and the Proverbs have a lot to say about anger and the, uh, what a foolish person is who, who doesn't, isn't able to control their temper. Hostility, that's rivalry, selfish ambition. Slander, to slander others. Uh, terrible thing. And, and probably mentioned it here before, you know, once you've said something about someone, you can't take it back. Okay? You can repent of it and you can ask for forgiveness, but it's already there, isn't it? You've already placed that into the mind or minds of those people. You've already cast that doubt on them. I've experienced that as a Christian many times. I've heard guys, you know, don't, don't listen to that preacher, he's... He's like this. Don't listen. Don't read that guy. He's like this. And I'm like, okay, okay. And then I actually start reading their stuff and listening to them. I'm like, wait a minute. This is, this is really good. But because they've been slandered by others, uh, I've written them off. And I've, in fact, slandered them to other people, even though I know nothing about them. Okay. Gossip. Lo and say this, gossip, what it means, providing harmful information about a person, often spoken in whispers or in low voice, with the implication that such information is not widely known and therefore should presumably be kept secret. And we all love that. You know, you want to be on the inside track. I just want to tell you. Okay. <laughs> it's like you feel special, like, sure, uh, I get to be included. But it's gossip. Gossip about others um, creates division. 
And then conceit, that is to be puffed up, literally means to be puffed up. It's quite a good, if you've ever been fishing uh, at the coast, so I don't have big fishing rods, I like bass fishing, so we just take our bass fishing rods and we just fish off the little rocks, the coast, and um, it's always these puffer fish that take, <laughs> they take, they attack these, everything. You're trying to catch a nice little zebra fish or something like that and there's these puffer fish and if you've ever seen them, they just, they explode like this. They, uh, that's the idea here, to be puffed up, full of pride. Um, it's, a excellent, it's an excellent word. It, it fulfills it exactly. It explains it exactly. Full of yourself. Arrogant. Um, you find it more in older, older churches, uh, in my experience. I'm sure it's not limited to that. But you need to watch it in all of our hearts where you, you know, people who become, they only want to talk to the important person in the church. Yeah. The, the visiting pastor or the pastor from America, that's, a, that's an important one. Like, that's an important guy. Only, only deal with those sort of people, not, not the plebs you know, who just visit the church and are members in the church. They're not really that important. It's the very important pastor or person. That's to be puffed up. It's to serve and to love everyone in the, in the church, not to think highly of yourself. And then lastly, disorder. The idea here is turmoil, to bring turmoil into the church. Now, unfortunately, in some denominations, some movements uh, within, within Christianity, turmoil and disorder are seen as, as the Holy Spirit. Uh, people say, well, if you have order and a liturgy and structure, you're quenching the Spirit. It's, it's nonsense. The Bible is very clear. Where the Spirit is at work, there is order. God is not a, a God of disorder. The Holy Spirit, remember, at creation brought order out of chaos. The earth is covered in water and he brings order and he brings beauty. Why do we have structure? Why do we do things in a certain way? Because it's a sign of the Holy Spirit at work, actually. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. It's not a, a mark of the Holy Spirit when there's chaos and disorder and turmoil and confusion. Don't blame that on the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is at work, you will see more structure in people's lives, more discipline in people's lives, more self-control in people's lives. And so Paul is worried that these sins are still there. Sins, people are still gossiping and slandering him. People are still dividing the church. There's still factionalism. And then he carries on, verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And so he's worried that he's going to come people that he's labored with, he's poured his life into, and they're not repented, and it would break him, it would humiliate him, and he would have to mourn over them. Again, notice the heart. He's heartbroken. He's mourning over them. I, I, I shudder often when I speak to, to pastors or I see, see people and the way they behave, leaders in churches who who do practice church discipline and it seems to be nothing to them. They don't mourn. 
there's even this phrase, blessed subtraction. Okay? You know, they're happy to get rid of certain people. Now, humanly, one can understand that, but that's not what we're called to as God's people and as, uh, as, as brothers and sisters. Whenever there is discipline, whenever it's necessary, we should be mourning. It's heartbreaking. Paul is saying that. I, I'm going to have to mourn over those who have sinned early and have not repented. Notice what he's talking about here, unrepentant sin. Uh, you see, as Christians, sin should not, should not shock us or surprise us. Okay. Uh, it's in the Bible, isn't it? All over the place. Okay. Go and read Genesis. Go and read Judges. It's there within God's people, unfortunately. It's going to be there because we are saints who unfortunately still sin. It should not shock us. It should not surprise us. It should sadden us, certainly. But as one pastor said, the church is the safest place to sin. I'm not saying it's a license to sin, but it's the best place. If you are going to sin, sin here so that we can help and deal with it. But if it's unrepentant, you know, that's a different story. But when people sin but they repent, and it's a glorious thing. It's wonderful. People broken, they bring, especially if they bring the sin to light themselves, it's not, it doesn't have to be exposed. Sometimes, like David, it has to be exposed. But when, when people of their own, and that's what we long for, that even as you're sitting here and the Holy Spirit convicts you, that of your own you would bring Sin to the light. That's glorious. And there's forgiveness and there's grace. But unrepentant sin. You see, that's what, what breaks the hearts of pastors, or should break the hearts of pastors, and all those in the congregation. Unrepentant sin. Those who will not turn from their sin. And what are these sins that affect the purity of the church? We've seen sins that affect the unity but here he's going to give a list of sins that affect the purity of the church. What we are striving for. Yes, there will be times when, when people in the church sin. But there is forgiveness if they're repentant and seek to fight the sin. But if they're unrepentant, it brings impurity and defilement to the church. So the first one is impurity. Uncleanness. It's a rich word from the Old Testament. Remember, you could be unclean for worship. Uh, how are you living? Are you living in a wicked way? Are you uh, touching what is death in the world? Remember that if they touched a dead body? They were unclean for worship. Is that what you're involved with? Uh, the wicked ideas, philosophies, actions of the world? That's how you, you're living your life? Uncleanness. It's, it's the unbeliever's default position or demeanor. That's what it's talking about here. Are you living like an unbeliever, basically? Then you're bringing impurity. You're impure and you're bringing that into the church. Sexual immorality, porneia, where we get the word pornography. It's a catch-all word for all sexual immorality. All sexual immorality, whether it's pornography, uh, lust, just in, in everyday life, whether it is fornication, adultery, homosexuality, 
All sexual sin is caught up here. Sexual immorality defiles the whole church. It creates impurity in the church and it it destroys you. Remember Paul says that sexual sin damages, destroys you. But again, there is forgiveness. There is grace. If you are repentant, if you're willing to turn from it, and let me tell you, these, the, the sexual immorality, are, these are powerful sins, okay? Because we know that uh, lust and all of these things produce certain things in the brain, and it's addictive. And it's very unlikely you will gain victory on your own. You need a community of believers. You need to confess that sin, bring it to the light, end that relationship, and then seek accountability. You bring in impurity into the church. Sensuality. I think the King James Version, the older English says licentiousness. I quite like that word because it has the idea exactly what it means. It means like a license to sin. Okay? Remember James Bond? He has a license to? To kill. Okay? <laughs> Always want, no, I've never wanted one of those. <laughs> I don't know where you get those licenses. Anyway. Uh, If you work for MI6 or something, then you get one of those. Uh, But there are people who think they have a license to sin. That's the idea here. That you can live your life however you want to live it, and then still come to church, still praise God, still take communion, but you just carry on because you've got a license. It's okay. Your conscience is seared. you're, You're living in sin but evangelizing. You're... You're doing these things. That's, Paul is saying these things. That destroys the church. And if it's unrepentant, he's going to come and deal with it. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 13, this is the third time I'm coming to you. So as I said, he planted the church. Then there was the sorrowful visit. And now he's planning to come the third time. And he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's Matthew 18, church discipline. Uh, verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while, I, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Paul has already warned them. He's written and said, you need to stop this. You need to turn from this sin. And if he comes again and there is no change, he will not spare them. Verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. So he has some sarcasm again. Remember, they were the Corinthian culture, very similar to, to, to the culture today. Just look at politics in America especially. Uh, they were looking for triumphalistic, bombastic, arrogant leaders uh, who reduced complex doctrines and complex truths to sound bites. That's what they liked. Triumphalistic leaders, go-getters. Even, even if they were abusive, because Paul says earlier on, he says, they, you take it if they strike you, if they hit you in the face. They took it. They took this type of leadership. He says, well, you, you're looking for that type of leadership. Well, I'm going to come. If you don't repent, I will come in strength. Okay. Now, again, the sarcasm is he's not going to be like them. He's going to come with real power, the power of God. And he says, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness. He's talking about Jesus. 
He's talking about church discipline. So church discipline, Matthew 18, you can go and read it in your own time. The, the steps for church discipline. One of the most misquoted verses, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. You know, people use that verse a lot, you know, for Bible study at the house. Two or three are gathered, Jesus is here with us. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about church discipline. Jesus is saying, I'm with you when you deal with unrepentant, immoral people who claim the name of Christ. I'm there to enforce that discipline. And that's what Paul is saying here. Jesus Christ is there. He, yes, he was crucified in weakness. He came in weakness. Okay? He was led as a lamb to the sword, as a, a sheep before its shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. Yes, he came in weakness, voluntary weakness. He laid down his life. But what does he say? But lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So he has a challenge. What Paul is saying, and it's still true today, uh, just because faithful ministers are gentle and patient, and that's what they're supposed to be, sacrificial and kind, not manipulative, not abusive, not building their own kingdom, not self-seeking, patient, long-suffering, just because they suffer and have difficulties and problems, uh, just because they might be physically weak and not physically impressive, not super handsome, or super eloquent, does not mean that they have no power. Okay? That's what Paul is saying here. All the way through he's been arguing he's weak. Yes, but that's actually a sign of God working in him. But people must not confuse his weakness with powerlessness. Because if he comes, he will come with the power of church discipline. Okay. The power of the resurrected Christ. Okay. And so it's the same. The message that we have is a powerful message. The gospel is a powerful message. Christ conquered death. And you know that we always talk like that, that he came first as a, as a lamb. Isn't that right? But how is he coming back again? As a lion. Okay. He came in weakness, but he is the resurrected Christ. And so to be part of God's people uh, means to fight sin, to fear discipline, to realize that there is, there is the, 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 the power of the gospel, the, the power to put out. Always, if we... If we ever teach on church discipline, then I, one of the most frightening things to me is that, uh, with excommunication, is that you are no longer under a shepherd. Okay? You no longer have the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? If you are, if you do belong to the Lord, you will be. You'll get a hiding. And you will come back by God's grace. It will be the means that God uses to bring you back. Okay? But why even go that path? Okay? Why even go down that road? Learn the lesson now. If there's quarreling, if there's strife in your life, if you're causing division, repent of that. If there's bitterness in your heart, speak to someone, deal with it. If there's sexual immorality and impurity, again, bring it to the light. There is 
hope. The same resurrected Christ who is powerful to judge is also powerful to save and to sanctify. It's the good news of the gospel that he has given us his Holy Spirit who can purify us and grow us in, in holiness. And so as Potch continues to grow by God's grace, uh, that we, you would be a church that takes holiness seriously, the church that is full of grace and the truth of the gospel that chooses leaders who are not abusive, not triumphalistic, not full of themselves, not trying to build their own kingdom, don't fit the culture's model of what a true leader is, but the Bible's model of a true leader, but also men who have backbone and are willing to do the hard things that the Bible calls us to. Potch would be a faithful church, a church that seeks to be holy, not perfect, not self-righteous, that's the other ungodly extreme, but a church that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for this example of a true leader, uh, one who imitated you, Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered so much, who, humanly speaking, was so weak. He um, was just an earthen vessel, but Inside was the treasure, the gospel. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel. He faithfully glorified you, Lord. He was kind and patient and gentle. But, Lord, he also dealt with those who were unrepentant. And, and so we pray for Heritage Potchestrom, Lord, that the leaders uh, and all members of the church would follow that model, that all of your children would be kind and patient and not abusive and uh, not full of strife and bitterness and anger and jealousy and discord and turmoil. Not full of impurity and immorality, but full of the fruit of the Spirit. And also willing to, to make those hard decisions, to discipline those who continue in, in unrepentance. Uh, first of all, to glorify you, uh, to honor you and to be faithful to you. Secondly, to keep the purity of the church. And thirdly, for the good of that person. Uh, it is no help to allow someone to live in sin and, and fool them into thinking that they're going to heaven. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for the church here. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you that uh, Rian and his family are able to move here now. And we, we just pray that you would bless them in every way and uh, bless the church here and grow the church in a wonderful way. And uh, we, we look forward to see what you're going to do. And thank you that you hear our prayers and you love to save and you love to build your church and nothing can stop you from building your church. In Jesus' name, amen.